So Carol said uh, yesterday afternoon that she had the hard talk. I agree. I've given that talk at least two years. <laughs> and uh, there's a certain uh, importance to that talk yesterday, which is it gives us a certain depth uh, and a certain um, gravitas or a certain weight that um, if we skip over that, our understanding can be kind of shallow, can be not quite as integrated. And um, so I really appreciate uh, the difficulty and the challenge uh, of that talk and also just where we are in this retreat. So for many of you, you might be cooking. There might be a lot going on, a lot of emotion, a lot of thoughts, a lot of body sensations. For others of you, you might just be arriving. It might feel like you're just getting into the retreat. So as best as I'm able, I'm going to try to meet you wherever you are. And my intention for this afternoon is to really highlight that even in the midst of the depth of experience or the depth of feeling, physical sensations, that we don't want to forget that it's also true that there is a spaciousness and dare I say a little bit of a lighter side that we don't want to forget that can help balance us out in the midst of whatever is unfolding, this great mystery of our life, of our practice. So in that spirit, <clears throat> I wanted to start with a cat joke. And for all the cat lovers in the room, I grew up with a lot of cats. And in fact, I had a cat named Boy. Don't know how he got that name. But Boy was a particular loved uh, member of my family because he used to sit at the bus stop when I was a little boy and wait for me to uh, get off the bus and then walk home with me. And then uh, every time he had his meal, he would sit down and he would use one paw to pick up the food and bring the food to his mouth. So I thought, this is some kind of amazing cat. I mean, it's just amazing. That kind of uh, just wonder uh, was part of my experience. So in boy's honor, this is part of the talk. And it's also a way to balance out some of the endless dog-cat debate, right? So we've had a lot of dog references. So now I'm going to bring in the cat to kind of bring up that balance just a little bit. So anyways, that's a long build-up to uh, a very... Uh, I don't know what I would call it, kind of a dad joke, but here's the joke. So this I found in the bookstore. I'll hold it up so you can see it. And on the one side, it has a meditator sitting in front of a bowl, and it says, that was Zen. And then the other side, it's got a cat sitting in front of a bowl, and it says, this is Meow. Okay? So that was Zen, this was Meow. So tonight's talk, I'm going to call The Curious Cats Find Gold. And I'm doing that for a particular reason, because it's such an odd title. You're going to think, what the heck is he talking about? But it's also going to help you remember the essence of what I'm trying to communicate, the essence of what I'm trying to point you towards. So The Curious Cats Find Gold. And my intention really is to try to inspire you and try to remind you of the 
power of curiosity. It's something that is so often overlooked. It's so ordinary that we fail to see the transformative power of showing up with a certain kind of wholehearted curiosity. And you're all doing that. So I want to reflect that back to you and tell you why it's so powerful. The other thing that I hope to do with this image or this metaphor of gold is to remind you of your own inner worth and your own value and hopefully provide a little bit more context for where we are in the middle of this retreat. So as I mentioned last night, I grew up um, in conditions that prized just a lot of intellect, a lot of reason, a lot of thought, and it's been extremely useful. So I just want to make it very clear that this is an extremely useful capability that we have as humans to think, to reason, to use logic. But if it's the only thing we know, then what it means is that there's so many other layers of experience of life that get left out. At least that was true in my experience. And so you um, hold that open as a question to see if it's true in yours. So I'd like to start with uh, a story from my own life. Um, This is another one when I was a small boy. And it was one of those times where uh, I was actually directly in the natural world. I was experiencing life through one of these other ways of knowing. It wasn't through the intellect. It wasn't through thought. It wasn't through reasoning. And so this was when I was a small boy and I used to go gold panning. So my family has a history of uh, being here in California. I grew up from a family that was miners. And um, my dad used to love to take uh, me and my brother and my sisters to go gold panning. And we used to go to the Feather River, which is uh, here in California. And my dad always had his secret spot. It was like there was the secret spot that you know, was kind of secluded that nobody really knew about. But we would take the whole day driving up the road, winding around by the river. And then at some point he would pull off and park the car and say, ah, this is it. So we would get out and we would spend the whole day where we would be putting dirt in a little gold pan And then we'd patiently sit in the river and we'd scoop up a little bit of water. And then we would just kind of sit in the river, washing the dirt with the water in the pan and slowly watching all of that top layers of the dirt, those lighter layers, just washing away with this very gentle kind of patient rocking motion. And for those of you that maybe haven't had this experience, the way it works is it's really simple. Basically, the weight of gold is heavier than most material. So what that means is when you agitate a pan, a gold pan, the lighter material naturally flows off just by being with it in this very gentle way. And then what remains in the pan is the heavier gold. And the really neat thing about this is that it's always there. It's always been there. It's been in the soil, but it was just covered up. It was just hidden. So it took a little bit of this loving attention and care and patience to be able to reveal what was there, this kind of inner radiance. And so for me, this experience of gold panning is partly why I love uh, practice and meditation so much, because there's so many similarities. So the first is that it takes a lot of patience. You have to be willing to spend a whole day in a secluded spot, and if you rush or hurry, then you don't find the hidden gold that's buried there right in the midst of the environment. And the analogy here is that when we're on retreat, there's nowhere you're going, right? 
we're going literally from point A to point A to point A. So that walking meditation, A to A to A. So there's no need for the rush. And we can settle back into this form or the structure of the retreat and allow ourselves to feel that frenetic energy of rushing slowly start to wash away, slowly start to dissipate. Some of you may have noticed that, that you have noticed that you're starting to slow down, maybe just a bit, might not have totally slowed down, but even just a hair. The other thing that uh, is very similar for me about this gold panning in practice is that it's deeply nourishing if you allow it to be. So when I was a kid, this meant that I would spend time swimming in the river or I'd be sunning myself on the rock, kind of like a cat sitting in a nice sunbeam in front of a window. There's another cat reference. And in here, what it means is that if we get too caught up in evaluating our practice or trying to achieve some ideal about what we think practice should be or what we've heard or read, then we miss what's right here already that's supporting and nourishing us. And it's so easy to miss this. So for example, we're sitting here in one of the most picturesque meditation halls. So take a moment and just look around, look at the paneling, look at the light that's coming in through the windows. Look at all the color that's in this room. So it's always here, but again, we have to remember to consciously and intentionally take it in. We're also we're in a community that's intentional of people with the shared and sincere intention of really being ethical, of being awake, of being kind. And we're learning about practices and techniques that human beings have used for thousands of years to find peace and happiness. For me, that feels like I'm being kind of supported and carried by this deep stream that goes back thousands and thousands of years of all these human beings that came before and all the human beings that will come after. And for me, there's a way of being able to be held in that, just be carried by that flow. There are the retreat managers, there's the cooks, there's even the staff down the hill that we don't see that are all working really hard to support this container that's so rare to have a place where there's silence, where we're well-fed, where we're cared for, where we can ask for something and then we get notes back. That's amazing. And then there are the animals that are on the environment, right? So as Carol mentioned this morning, we were a little delayed because the turkeys had somewhere to go. So in that moment, the turkeys get to go and we stop. And you can feel how the quality and the interaction, the relationality between the animals and all of us is different here. And I'm sure so many of you have noticed that, right? So the turkeys don't immediately run away when they see you. Or the deer might pause for a moment. They perk up, they stop, they look at you, and then they might go back and start to eat again, as opposed to bolt into the forest right away. So that's not to be missed. That means that something here has understood this quality, this very rare and precious environment that we're all in. And that can be a deep source of nourishment and support. And then lastly, let's not forget our own body. Because you may have aches and pains and the wild emotions that move through, but at the same time, if you're like me, it's almost as though there's this little inner voice that's saying, thank you, finally, you're listening to me, you're giving me nourishing food, you're letting me rest, and you're taking feedback. 
right? I mean, it's like, it's so obvious that we miss it. And yet this is a deep, deep source of being able to be nourished and supported. So it's, this, it's a mind-body, right? It's not just that our body is a bag of bones that carries around our brain. No, they're in dialogue. And so finally that dialogue gets restored here. And it's a really sacred thing. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that it's really easy to miss all the support and the nourishment that's here. And to help us in those difficult and challenging times, remember to receive, remember to take this in, remember to notice and acknowledge all that's being offered and let yourself receive. For me, it was quite difficult to receive. I think I mentioned this the other night in uh, the loving kindness practices that it took me a while to understand how to receive, right? So the simple act of putting your hand on your chest, yes, it's supporting, but I might not have totally taken that in. I actually have to soften my chest to receive that support. So if there are those of you that are like me, this is a non-trivial experience. What does it mean to be supported and to receive support? So the last similarity between, at least for me, between gold panning and meditation is that it requires a certain knowledge and skill. And so in gold panning, you have to know about the tool of the gold pan itself. And you have to know how to wisely work with the dirt and the water to be able to find the hidden gold. And so this is what I want to point you towards. And this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about. These little pointers to kind of point you in the direction so that you can do your own um, investigation. You can use the power of your awareness to really feel into these places and discover perhaps your own hidden gold. So let me start by saying that, you know, if, if it's not totally obvious, here's how the metaphor works. So the gold pan is a metaphor for your body. It's that primary tool that allows us to really keep pointing back to our experience in a felt sense way. So we can always view the experience, like I did when I was young, through the intellect, through the idea that I have of the experience. But if I do that, it's only half the experience. I need the body to be able to fully engage with the experience. Because it's only half the story if it's just the mind. Because I am a mind-body. I'm embodied. So that's the gold pan. The river water is the metaphor for your kind and gentle attention. So it's that which washes over all of experience. And it's something that you keep allowing to work and work and work, but you're not doing anything because the water's naturally flowing, just like the awareness itself is alive. You just know it's there and it washes over the experience. And you trust that at each time it's washing something, it's making contact. And the dirt is the metaphor for whatever is happening in any given moment. This is the raw material of life. It's the raw material of what's ever happening on this retreat. And the gold, the gold is that new insight or that new understanding, something that you see for the first time. It's like when you catch, if you imagine a little piece of gold, there's that little glint that kind of catches your eye. That's what that insight or that understanding is. You see something in a new way. And in seeing it in a new way, you experience your life differently. So what do we notice when we do this? Well, we notice, as Ruth King likes to say, that nothing is personal, permanent, or perfect. And this frees our heart and our mind to be curious 
and even a bit playful, like a cat with a ball of yarn. And we're fully engaged with that experience, just like the cat batting that yarn. So the first place that I want to point you to for this hidden gold with, is with emotions. So you may have noticed that it's very easy to take emotions personally, and they can have such power, they can be disorienting. And we can get stuck in the story of the emotion, right? It's like we can see the content, we see it over and over again, and it's so powerful and hypnotizing that we get sucked into that story. We get sucked into whatever that narrative is that we've told ourselves again. And we miss the underlying nature of emotion itself. What is emotion? Or on the other side of it, we might be completely perplexed by emotion. We might be thinking that we need to have some massive cathartic experience, otherwise we're not really feeling anything. And so both of these are kind of um, extremes. And so what I want to point you to is that uh, the emotion is just any feeling that we have that arises around an experience that makes it more vivid. So let me give you a specific example. So I'm sitting here now, right? And I can observe or look at this uh, shawl that I'm wearing uh, on my legs. And that's one way of experiencing this shawl. But when I use my hand and I make contact with the shawl, I can feel the texture of the shawl. It's so much more rich than if I just use sight. So feeling is like that. Feeling is what gives us the richness of the experience. It's like that texture of what is life, the texture of life itself, but felt directly, known directly in the moment. And so the really interesting part about this textural quality is that when we start to pay attention to it, we notice that things become so much more vivid. And the root meaning of emotion is to move outwards. So the Latin for the word emotion is to move outwards. And for me this is really helpful because what it's pointing to is that it's pointing to this movement quality of emotion, that emotion's inherent nature is to move, it's to flow. And so this reminds us that the emotion itself is wave-like and so many of you have probably experienced this where you feel like the wave-like quality of an emotion. It's like all of a sudden you're fine, the next moment somebody says something or we're guiding something in the hall and it's like full emotion. And then you feel that kind of crescendo and then you feel the emotion as it dissipates. And it can come again and again, almost like waves buffeting the rocks over and over. But the important piece is that the essential nature of the emotion is wave-like. That the content may change, but the emotion itself has the same characteristic. And so we, we might start to get really curious, curious like a cat intentionally watching a bird out a window, and notice how emotions suddenly rise up, they change, they shift, they disappear. And the key is to trust that your body knows how to feel an emotion if you let it. And it has an intelligence and a wisdom of its own that can actually process the raw material of the motion in combination with your awareness. The two work together like a glove that goes on a hand. So I'll give you a concrete example here, something that may help you understand this more directly. So if you've noticed out on the hills, and you can maybe even see out the windows now, 
or if you've been standing outside and you've noticed the tall grass. And if you stand just out here on the little patio and you look towards the hills and you see the morning sun come down and it kind of lights up the field in that golden color. And you watch as the wind blows through the grass. You can see that wave-like nature of the wind as it moves through the grass. But the grass itself has that flexibility, that pliability. It moves with the wind. So we see the wave-like nature because of the movement of the material, the grass, in combination with this kind of intangible thing that we call wind. So think of it like this. Your body has that pliability, that movement, just like the grass. Your mind will have the power and the force of the wind, but together we experience the wave-like nature. And this is a really important insight because we start to see that experience has this wave-like quality. So in my own experience, some of uh, my deepest insights came with being able to sit with the emotion, not needing to fix it, not needing to get rid of it, not needing to dive into it, not needing to reject it, not needing to make a story, but just being with it in a loving and patient way. So a very simple example. Many of you have, may have noticed that you know, during the group meetings, if you come in and you're kind of sitting there, there can be a vulnerability, right? A tenderness. And it's like, I don't know what I want to say or should I say something or I don't know if I'm ready to share this yet. And so that aliveness, that emotional texture of the experience can be felt directly. And you may have noticed that in the interviews. It's like somebody says something or you're sitting there and you know that at some point you need to share something because as teachers we're saying, we need to hear from you. And you can feel some of that openness and vulnerability. And so there's that texture, very immediate. So I'm using that example specifically because it's not some huge cathartic experience or it's not something that is just you know, I I can't discern it. It's just this everyday, every moment experience that gives you the felt sense, the texture of your life. So George Washington Carver, the African-American scientist, professor, and inventor who had the nickname the plant doctor, uh, he was renowned for being able to revive living things. That's why he had the name the plant doctor. He said, anything will give up its secrets if you love it enough. So that's what's being called for here. Love it enough, and it will reveal its mystery to you. So how do we work with emotion? Well, as Carol explained, you can use this technique of rain. So if you feel that strong force, like the wind moving through the grass, it's buffeting you, it feels like it's just so powerful, you can use this technique of rain. You recognize, you allow, you open, non-identification or nurture, whichever one resonates with you. Oh, I think I said open. It should be investigation. (laughs) That's my way of translating. My experience of investigation is openness. So I just gave you my direct experience of investigation. I'm fully open to the experience. So that's how we can use that technique of RAIN. We use it in the midst of it when we feel it directly. So the second place to be able to find uh, hidden gold is with thoughts. So this is where that aspect of permanency, where we take things to be permanent, we can start to unte- we can unpack this or play with it a little bit. And the trick here is that often, if you're like me, we can have these thought patterns or these beliefs or these ideas. 
and underlying it without even being fully aware or conscious of it is the idea that this is how it's always going to be. I'm always such a fill-in-the-blank kind of person. And when we start to actually get curious about our thinking and our beliefs and our habits of mind, we can start to see how this is constructed. It's not actually permanent. It's something that's being built upon that we're giving a lot of ourself to, but we don't realize that we're lost into that experience. And it's just another experience, just like a passing sight, a passing sound. So it's a little bit like getting lost on the internet looking for adorable cat videos. This is, as one long uh, online blogger wrote, anyone who roams the internet in search of cat pictures knows a sad yet inescapable truth. There are never enough. (laughs) So this is kind of like with thoughts. We end up roaming and roaming, never actually arriving anywhere, because there is never enough time to think about everything. Have you noticed this? The endless, not, the endless nature of thought, it just rolls on and on and on and on. And yet we think, oh, there's never enough. I need more. I need to keep finding more, more cat pictures, more thoughts, more cat pictures. And so in our practice, this is where we want to get really curious, right? And when we get really curious, we notice that thought in its essence is nothing more than just a wisp. It's just this kind of ephemeral wisp of an experience. Unless we get entangled by it, unless we get lost in that experience. And so you may have noticed here that you might have repetitive songs just going through your mind. It's like, wow, I haven't thought of that song in 30 years, and here it is, nonstop, top number one track, billboard hits all day long, right? Or you might have a story that you just keeps replaying itself again and again, and I'll date myself. It's a tape that goes over and over and over, right? Um, Or you might imagine whole worlds in your mind. It's like you live, for those of you that love technology, this is for those of you younger in the room, you live in a virtual reality, right? It's like, oh, it's multi-sensory, but it's in your mind. It's totally virtual. And so here on retreat, I'll give you another concrete example, right? So again, something to help you understand it more directly. So Again, outside, if you're standing outside, and if you notice, today it's a little bit harder because there's a little bit more dense clouds. But over the last couple of days, you could see those wispy-like clouds that were moving through the sky, right? That beautiful blue sky and the wisp of the clouds kind of moving through. And this is a lot like the nature of thought itself. What happens, though, is that we tend to stand in the cloud. And then we're in the cloud... And we don't know that we're in the cloud. And we think, well, this is it. This is the reality. Because we can't see beyond the cloud itself. And so what it takes is some of that perspective to know, oh, I'm in the cloud. And how do you know you're in a cloud? You're getting wet, right? So by thinking, you can feel the activity of thinking itself, just like you could feel the wetness of a cloud. And this is an indicator for you to get really curious. It's like, oh, thinking, thinking, thinking. Not so much about the content. Is it a cumulus cloud? Is it some kind of other cloud? It's just thinking. That's all it is. And so I'll give you an example of this. Um, This is a recent one. So about a month ago, I had a pretty bad bike accident. And actually, I have a brain injury. And so I've always prided myself on uh, my thinking and my thoughts. But I found now that I have to let all of that go. I have to actually rest back into my body 
and just trust that whatever comes out of my mouth, for example, if I say open instead of investigate, that that's what's meant to be. And that when things disappear, that wispy-like nature of a thought, I pause for a moment, and then something else emerges. So you may have noticed that if you've been in a group uh, meeting with me, there'll be periods where I just pause, and that's because all the thoughts just dissipated, like the clouds for a moment. And I had to just rest with my body. I'm alive, I'm here. And then something reemerges. But this is so freeing. So rather than being afraid of that process, I can rest in that process. My identity is not my thoughts. Who I am as a person is so much more than the content of my thought. So how do we work with thought? Well, again, we get really curious. I'll use a slightly different metaphor now. A cat watching a mouse hole. You wait and you watch, noticing the direct experience. And you can use the whisper-like note or label of thinking, which has been suggested. So this idea of just thinking, thinking, thinking. So light, it's like 5% of the experience is on that whisper label, thinking, thinking. 95% of your attention is with noticing the direct experience of what is thought? What is it directly? 5% is just that whisper label that helps you not get caught, not get lost in the thought. The other thing that you can do is you can drop into feeling thinking in your body. And for me, this was an incredible experience because I could feel every time I have a thought and I get lost in my thought, there's subtle constriction in my body. The more I'm entangled in thinking, the more constriction there is in my body. The more open and available I am to experience, the less constriction I feel. This may be different for you, but check it out. It's worth noticing and being really curious about. One of the most painful experiences, uh, for me anyways, is the inner critic. So some of you may have noticed the committee of the mind and there's one voice in particular that seems to always demand the floor and always seems to be pointing out those things that you're not good at, that you've failed, that you've done wrong, rather than all the things that you've done well, that you've succeeded at, that you're capable of. And so for me, being able to use a little bit of play and creativity in the midst of that inner critic is so important. So allow yourself to maybe even come up with a name for this inner critic. It might be Sweetie. I've used that. It might be Frank. Whatever the name is, use something that allows you. And notice even just with that little bit of playfulness, right? There's a little bit of lightness that unsticks us. That little bit of levity allows us to get unstuck. Because if we're just in the depth of experience lost in it, we lose the other side, so we're imbalanced. So we want to make sure that we're always in this balance. So find your name that seems to work, something that gives it more reality and tangibility so that when the inner critic is there, you go, thank you, sweetie, I think I got this. Or Frank, it's great to hear from you, buddy, but right now, I think I'm okay. So whatever your version is, but allow yourself to be wildly playful with it. So this is a quote that's often attributed to Mark Twain, even though I don't think he ever really said it, but it doesn't really matter, because it's a good quote. He said, I've been through some terrible things in my life, some which actually happened. So this is where, again, we pop the fantasy of the thoughts. We pop that imaginary world, that virtual reality, right? Right? 
And the interesting thing is it's almost like the uh, weather forecaster, right? If you ever watch the morning weather forecaster in the news, but every morning you wake up and the forecast is negative. You know, it's sort of like, oh yeah, I don't know if I need to listen to that forecaster as much. So we get to notice that our mind tends to move in the direction of all the things that are forecasting in the negative direction, right? It rarely inclines itself to all the things that are working, that are possible. What's the potential? And so we just want to help it a little bit. It's like, oh, yeah, come on, sweetie, I'll take you for a walk. We'll go this way. And so we can move in that direction. So to really uh, emphasize this point, for those of you that um, you know, like some of the science and things, there was an article that was published in uh, 2014, and it was called Just Think. And I'll give you the, uh, the essence of it. So there were uh, participants that were asked to join this study, and they were told to give up their belongings, their phone, their writing materials, and they were asked to spend six to 15 minutes in an unadorned room with the only instructions being remain in your seats, stay awake, and try to just entertain yourself. Does this sound familiar? Aside from the entertain yourself, yeah? So what happened after this experience of 15 minutes is that most people said it was difficult to concentrate. Their mind wandered. They didn't enjoy the experience very much. So the researchers said, hmm, well, that's interesting. Let's try it again. But this time, we're going to offer the participants an opportunity to give themselves a mild shock. And we'll tell them in advance that you that this is unpleasant. This is a mild shock and they will all go through the experience and they will experience the shock and they will go, yes, that is unpleasant. I don't, you know, not excruciating, but it's unpleasant. It's not something that I would choose to do. And so they, as they say, this is a direct quote from the study, we went to some length to explain the primary goal was to entertain themselves, not to shock themselves. What happened? 43% of participants chose to shock themselves. One outlier shocked themselves 190 times. The conclusion from the study, an untutored mind doesn't like to be alone with itself. And so this is where, again, let that sink in, right? That's what we're doing here, this delicate, precious work of training our hearts and minds. And it's kind of like a trained puppy. I'll use a puppy analogy here where when we, the puppy's untrained, it makes a mess all over the house, right? But when we train the puppy, it's not so messy anymore. And so that's what we can do with our mind. And we want to have that quality, right? If you, if you have, imagine the puppy of your mind and you're trying to train it and you set it down on the newspaper the first time and you say, stay, 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 and you get down on the floor and you say, stay, what happens? Well, usually the first couple times, the puppy runs off the newspaper, goes, <laughs> thinks it's time to play, right? So you have an option in that moment. You can gently pick up that puppy and place it back on the newspaper with a lot of kindness, a lot of patience and love and start again and say, stay, stay. Or you could roll up the newspaper and you could whack that puppy on the snout. And if you whack that puppy on the snout, over time, you're conditioning fear. And we can do this in our own mind. If we have this adversarial relationship with our own mind and our own heart, it's like whacking our heart and mind with that newspaper. So that's why in the instructions, you'll constantly hear us emphasizing, 
patience, kindness, gentleness, because that quality is relational, just like the puppy and you know, the, the person that's caring for the puppy. It's a relational dynamic. So let me tell you about the last place um, of hidden gold that I'd recommend. And this is what I like to refer to as the mystery of your life. And so within this space, we can see directly this idea that, as I said in the beginning, nothing is perfect, nothing is permanent, and nothing is, uh, what was the other one? I've already lost it. Personal. And so of those three uh, characteristics, we can see that in this dimension of the mystery of our life, we're letting go of the idea of perfection, the idea of this kind of idealism. And for me, there was this kind of unacknowledged um, thought or belief that if I could just string together enough positive moments, kind of like beads on a string, that that would be the full maturity of my practice. It's just like an endless string of positive moments was what a mature practice looked like. Uh, this shows how naive I was in the beginning. But I actually, you know, I didn't know that that was my belief structure, that that was it. So I had this idea of perfection. But then there was the reality of my perfectly imperfect self. And this is where it's really about showing up. That's it. You just show up for your life wholeheartedly. You come here to the hall, you sit down, you take your seat. You have some confidence in your own ability to be awake, to be aware, to feel life, to understand it. This is uh, to quote... Uh, the 15th century Sufi poet who was the son of a Muslim weaver in uh, Benares, India. This is Kabir. He says it this way. Inside this clay jug, there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. So inside this clay jug, there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water. If you want the truth, I'll tell you the truth, friend. Listen. The God whom I love is inside. To give you a more modern example, just to show you how wisdom shows up in funny places, this is a quote from the kids' movie Treasure Planet. Listen to the similarity. You got the makings of greatness in you, but you've got to take the helm. Stick to it, no matter the storms. And when the time comes, you'll get the chance to really test what you're made of. And, well, I hope I'm there for it, catching some of the light coming off of you that day. Wisdom in so many different places, right? Even in a children's movie. So what I want to remind you is that, as I mentioned on the opening night, it's not about getting anywhere. It's not about achieving something. 
It's about being patient and really settling in. Being curious like a cat and allowing all of your experience to be rinsed by that water of your loving attention so that the hidden gold can emerge from the soil of your life and that that hidden gold enriches the whole world. And it's what we need so desperately right now. To put it more practically, for those of you that are very pragmatic and practical, not so metaphorically, these talks are giving you information. They're giving you a kind of idea. But it's important to remember that the concept is not the experience. So the information that we give you is merely the pointer, right? It's like the old Zen, the finger pointing at the moon. The finger is not the moon, but it's the direct pointer. And so once you have that information, you then take it and you put it into practice. You apply it. You notice what's the nature of emotion? What's the nature of thought? Trust my body. Trust that I can meet my experience. Trust that I can show up for this mysterious unfolding of my life. And when you put it into practice, again and again and again and again, you then have the experience that you know that you know. And knowing that you know is an inside-out experience. It's visceral. You know that you know from the inside. And no one can tell you otherwise. And this is when you become your own best teacher. Because it's your truth. And that's what all of this is pointing to. To your own direct truth. The immediacy of your lived experience. So the last thing that I'll say is remember that cats rule, at least the internet, and dogs drool. So thank you for your kind, kind attention. And if anything I shared with you was not useful, leave it here with me. And uh, we'll now have um, just maybe a moment to sit together. Let the words go. Let the concepts and the ideas. And just sit in the immediacy of your own life, your own inner gold. And be curious about the brilliance of your own inner worth, your own value. So we have a bit of time before dinner. And I would encourage you to just spend some time outside, letting the ideas and the things that were shared be known through the natural world. Not through the words, but through the world itself. Have a wonderful dinner.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.